right there everyone and welcome back to Hits 21 where me Rob, me Andy and me Lizzie look back at every single UK number one of the 21st century from January 2000 right through to the present day. If you want to get in touch with us you can find us over on Twitter. We are at Hits21UK, that is at hits 21 UK and you can email us too. Just send it on over to hits21podcast at gmail.com. Thank you so much for joining us again. Just like our previous episodes, we'll be looking back at some number one singles from the year 2002. This time we'll be looking uh, at the period between the 12th of May to the 1st of June. So it's another very, very short period. Um, Just 20 days. That must be the shortest ever. <laughs> Um, yeah, I think last week pushes it really close, um, so, ah well, like I said last time, that's what we get for going down to three songs an episode. That's true. Um, <laughs> the winner of the poll last week was, uh, I think it was the favourite on this show, two, in fact it definitely was, it was Freak Like Me, uh, Sugar Babe, so well done to yeah. Sugar Babe. Deservedly for, so. Yeah, well I think so too, for that particular, uh, victory there so on to this week's episode as always we are going to be giving you some headlines from around the time that these songs were number one in the united states the recovery effort at ground zero the former site of the world trade center comes to a close to mark the occasion the last steel beam is removed from the site and carried away during a ceremony honoring the construction workers who built the towers in the 1970s, while pipe and drum musical performances and helicopter flyovers were also featured as part of proceedings. In football, the 2002 FIFA World Cup in Japan and South Korea begins. The first game of the tournament sees newcomers Senegal beat reigning champions France 1-0. Senegal would go on to reach the quarter-finals, while France would exit the tournament in the group stages, winning no games. Yeah, that was my first big World Cup there. That was the one where we all had to go to school at half seven to watch England play. Yeah. I have a spe specific memory about that, which was that there were two occasions during the England-Brazil match where the crowd got just a little bit too rowdy for the teachers. And so they turned off the TV on two occasions to, uh, to calm us down. And those two occasions, we missed both Brazil goals. Um, oh my god. So yeah, <laughs> it became a bit of a curse. We were like, don't turn off the TV again. Meanwhile, the BBC reports that NASA space probe Mars Odyssey has found signs of huge ice deposits on Mars. Odyssey also discovered large amounts of hydrogen, indicating that ice also lay within a metre of the planet's surface. To this day, Mars Odyssey is still out there and has enough fuel to last until 2025, so clock's ticking, boys. <laughs> yeah, very close to the end. Um, yeah, yeah. If any listeners can tell, it was a bit of a struggle to find news for this short period, which is why we're talking about things on Mars as opposed to planet Earth. <laughs> um, in cinemas, Star Wars Episode Two: Attack of the Clones begins a four-week reign at the top of the UK box office. The sequel to The Phantom Menace grossed a total of £21.9 million during its four weeks at the top. Its worldwide total gross was $654 million, which would be just over a billion dollars in today's money. And my God, it is the worst Star Wars film by Without a question. long, long chalk. Yeah. Like, I'm generally a defender of 
especially of uh, Revenge of the Sith and to an extent The Phantom Menace but Attack of the Clones is god I remember me and you Andy when we watched it together with um, our respective partners about five years ago and the atmosphere in the room when that film finished was just like none of us really knew how to talk to each other it was just yeah Ugh, and as, as good a time as any to plug the podcast where we did that, <laughs> we did that as part of a podcast <laughs> yeah. called Rebel Chums, where we rewatched all the Star Wars films. So check that out. Thanks for that segue. Anyway, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Meanwhile, Latvia's Marie N wins the 2002 Eurovision Song Contest with her single "I Wanna." The song achieved 176 points and beat Malta to the title and reached number 15 in the Belgium pop charts. It did not chart in the UK, unfortunately. And on MTV, reality series The Osbournes is broadcast in the UK for the first time. Just one more thing on that Eurovision. Um, I do remember who our entry was that year for 2002. Yeah, so do I. With Pop yeah. Idol having just finished, it was Pop Idol alumnus uh, Jessica Garlic with Come Back, um, who yeah. entered for us that year, and did very well. She came about fourth or fifth, I believe. Yeah, uh, A respectable third. Oh, that's very, very, more than respectable. Wow. Yeah. And the Broadcasting Standards Commission rules that scenes showing domestic abuse in episodes of EastEnders that aired over Christmas 2001 were inappropriate for a pre-Watershed audience. The scenes in which Trevor Morgan attacked his wife, Little Mo, went too far when families would have been watching the programme. This, oh, right. Well, that would have gone out about 7 o'clock, right? Yeah, we we covered we covered yeah. this in the Christmas episode that it was sort of the centerpiece of Christmas Day on BBC One, and that in yeah. retrospect is a bold choice. But they've done far worse since. Like they've they've oh, shown sure. you know people being bent to death, and mm-hmm. you know, like they had the baby swap thing happen at Christmas about ten years ago. Like they've done worse than that. Um, not to say that it's not awful the scenes with Little Mo and Trevor, but it was at least you know true to life, worthwhile. Whereas it's just it's just needless like <laughs> shock value yeah. these days with these Yeah, yeah. So Andy, album charts, how are they doing? Well, as again, it's a very very short period that we're covering this week. There's not a huge amount to recap on with the albums chart. Um, as you remember from last week, Doves were at the top for two weeks with the last broadcast and are toppled by none other than Moby with his album 18, which uh, went one times platinum and stayed at the top for one week. It was toppled by none other than Mr. Ronan Keating with his album <sighs> Destination, which went two times platinum but stayed at the top for just one week. And then right at the end of the period that we're covering this week, a little old rapper from the US of A called Eminem um, gets their latest number one album with the Eminem Show, which would stay at the top for a grand total of five weeks on the run and would go six times platinum and would be within the top five highest selling albums of 2002 in the UK. So... Yeah, it is genuinely the Eminem show this week, um, quite literally. <laughs> yeah, big year, big year for uh, for Eminem. Lizzie, US, US charts. How are they? How are they faring? Yeah, well, no new singles to discuss this week as "Foolish" by Ashanti continues its ten-week reign at number one. We do have a couple of new albums around this time, though. First up this week is Kenny Chesney and his album "Wait for This." No shirt, no shoes, no problems. <laughs> <What>? <laughs> Which 
Got to number one for one week, went four times platinum in the US and finished at number 32 on the year-end list. But as far as I can tell, didn't chart over here at all. What an advert that is for a trusty pair of jeans. I know. (laughs) (laughs) And after that, uh, the rap duo Big Timers got to number one with their album Hood Rich, which stayed at number one for one week and finished at number 60 on the year-end list. That was followed by one week at number one for Just Listen by Music Soul Child, which went platinum in the US and finished at number 67 on their year-end list, but only charted as high as number 97 in the UK. And finally this week, P. Diddy scored his second Billboard number one album with We Invented the Remix, a compilation of remixes with various featured artists, which went platinum in the US and finished at number 48 on their year-end list. That also stayed at number one for one week before being dethroned by, who else? Eminem. But more on that next time. Yeah. Other than P. Diddy and Eminem, I have to kind of accuse you of making all of those up, Lizzie, because I just never heard of any of them. (laughs) I I mean, I'd never heard of Big Timers, but I have heard of one of the members. Um, It's actually Birdman, who worked with Lil Wayne a lot. Oh, right. Oh, yeah. Okay. That's a fun pop fact. Yeah. Yeah. There you go. Okay then, on to the number one singles for this week. And opening up this week's show is this. Sometimes late at night I lie awake and I watch her sleeping She's lost in peaceful dreams So I turn out the light Lay there in the dark And the thought crosses my mind If I never wake in the morning Would she ever doubt The way I feel about her in my heart If tomorrow never comes Don't you know how much I left her? Did I try in every way to show her every day? She's my only world. And if my time on earth were through, she must face this world without me. In the past, gonna be enough to last if tomorrow never comes. Okay, this is If Tomorrow Never Comes by Ronan Keating. Released as the lead single from his second studio album entitled Destination, If Tomorrow Never Comes is Ronan Keating's fifth single overall to be released in the UK. It's his third single to reach number one after When You Say Nothing At All and Life Is A Roller Coaster both reached the summit in 1999 and 2000 respectively. It is his last single to reach number one in the UK. The song is a cover of the 1989 Garth Brooks single which didn't chart in this country. If Tomorrow Never Comes went straight in at number one as a brand new entry knocking Holly Valance off the top spot. It stayed at number one for one week 
In its first and only week atop the charts, it sold 148,000 copies and beat competition from DJ by H and Claire, which got to number three, Follow the Leader by Nigel and Marvin, which got to number five, <laughs> and Someone Like You by Russell Watson and Faye Tozer, which got to number ten. What the hell? When yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> when it was knocked off the top of the charts, If Tomorrow Never Comes fell one place to number two, and by the time it was done on the charts, it had been inside the top 100 for 20 weeks. The song is officially certified platinum in the UK, having sold over 600,000 copies. Andy, I will let you jump in on this. Uh, I mean, I've spent probably the last couple of weeks hoping that If Tomorrow Never Comes would indeed never come. But if if tomorrow never comes, had never come, you wouldn't know how much I love it, which is not at all, unfortunately. Um, it's not just my least favourite song of the week, nor is it my least favourite song of 2002. It's probably my least favourite song we've ever covered on the podcast. Oh wow! Um, wow. Okay. I think as I've I think as I've said this recently on the podcast, but. It really is like the ultimate kind of maxim I would follow is that it's absolutely fine, well, ish, for songs to be bad on this show. You know, I feel like the likes of Five doing We Will Rock You, you know, they've they've taken a punt at least, and I can respect that. They've tried to do something, and it's awful, but they tried. This song to me is the representation of not really trying. It's just so empty and dull. And, you know, I feel like maybe I've gone a little bit overly personal with Ronan Keating in previous weeks, and I've got nothing against the guy personally, but he and I are just on different wavelengths in terms of what makes a successful pop song, because it really just has, it seems to be that mindset of just playing it safe in every possible way. You know, I, I, I listened to this a few times. I really did try and give it a go and try and elevate it above that just absolute bottom marks that I was, like, expecting to give this. But I just couldn't find anything. I really couldn't. It's almost sort of bottom marks for me by default. Because at no point is, is Ronan ever vocally challenged by this song at, in any way. At no point does it really develop beyond the standard verse chorus structure. There's not really much of a bridge, to be honest. Um, it never really develops instrumentally. And the substance of the song has been done many, many other times in better ways by very, you know, very recently by different artists who've done it more effectively. You know, in terms of the actual tone of it of, oh, well, if I died tomorrow, you know, would you remember me? I'm almost, almost accidentally saying the lyrics to Hero by Enrique Iglesias when I say that. Like, if I died, would you remember me? You know, it just sounds like exactly like something you would get from Hero yeah, by yeah. Enrique. And it yeah, just true. seems like, you know, if, if Cliff Richard was the British inferior Elvis, then Ronan Keating is very much bringing the British inferior Enrique here. Um, it just, I, re I really have tried to find something positive to say about this, but I just don't. I think it's just empty of everything. It's, it could benefit from a key change, I have to say. It could benefit from some of those cheesy strings that Westlife throw all over it. It could benefit from, you know, a big gospel choir of it. Like, that would be cheesy and it would be silly and mawkish, but it would be something, at least. It wouldn't be nothing, and this is nothing, um, and so I just, I just really have nothing that I got from this, um, and so it's not like pure reviling hatred that I have for this song. It's just that this song doesn't make me feel anything at all, 
um, it's a waste of three minutes as far as I'm concerned. Um, so yeah, unfortunately, not a favourite of mine. Um, but yeah, before I hand over to you two, though, I really have to tell a story about this song, which happened fairly yes. recently. Happened. Yes. Fa- <laughs> it happened fairly recently, and it might not be that funny, but in context. It was so funny, and I, had, I could barely contain my laughter. So basically, we've probably mentioned before, Rob and I are in a karaoke league locally where different teams sing karaoke basically against each other, and a judge decides the winning team. It's really fun. You should do it. Um, but this particular week, we were running way over time because like, it had been a week where everyone had done like languid, long ballads, like coincidentally. So it was getting on for midnight, and everybody was so tired. This is a school night. Everybody just desperately wanted to go home. We had beds to go to. And then the judge stood up and we were like, at last, here's our result. And she got to the front of the room and said, okay, it's the moment you've all been waiting for. I'm going to do a song. And the result had to wait. <laughs> and the song that she did was the very same, If Tomorrow Never Comes. <laughs> Which not only is, you know, the most boring song choice you could pick for that time of night, but also lyrically was so ironic. And I don't think she realized the humor of minutes to midnight when people desperately want to go to bed singing the words, if tomorrow never comes. (laughs) And um, it was just the most surreal sitcom style moment that happened. And I've always associated it with that ever since. Um, But yeah. That's kind of the most memorable thing that's ever happened with that song, as far as I'm concerned. It's just, I, I do have to make a sort of more serious point, really, that, you know, I've taken the piss out of this song quite a lot. But this is the uh, the third, is it the third number one that Ronan Keating's had? Because he had one in the 90s yeah. Yeah. as well. He had plenty with Boyzone as well. And I just think there is a broader point here about how easy it is for established stars to do this. You know, it, th- th- this really is just pop music by numbers. And... And again, I don't mean that as a personal thing towards Ronan Keating, but I think it's perhaps taken for granted of how easy it is to get a number one when you just do the same old, same old, and you've got a star name behind you. Um, You know, a classic example a few years ago in podcast terms as well with Westlife and Mariah Carey with Against All Odds. That was, you know, I had all the same criticisms of that, really, that it was just star power, a bland song, but what the hell, it gets number one because of that. And... I just think that is a real crying shame. A real crying shame. You know, we didn't really miss out on any big, fun number ones from H and Claire or whatever this in this particular week. But I just think, you know, if you've got that built-in fan base, do something for them. You know, give us something a bit more exciting than this. Life as a roller coaster was actually more interesting than this. If life was a roller coaster in that song, then this song is just a lazy river. Um, and that's all mm. I have to say. Sorry, Ronan. <laughs> Quick uh, shout out to an Osmond song that you just made me think of there, down by the lazy river. Um, <laughs> but yeah, Lizzie, Lizzie, are you? Do you feel any better towards uh, if tomorrow never comes, or are you sort of where Andy is right now? Uh, yeah, I'm pretty much where you are, Andy. I think you've summarised that really well. Because, um, like, admittedly, from what little of it I've heard, I can't say that I'm a huge fan of country music in general, but. I can only assume that country music is as successful as it is because the best country music finds that perfect middle ground between sincerity and schmaltz. Yeah. Like, the Garth Brooks original isn't a song I can see myself revisiting very often, but Brooks has a rich, warm voice which suits this style of music much better. As a result, 
His delivery hits that right balance between sincere and schmaltzy, or between natural and melodramatic, much like, I don't know, a lot of the best Dolly Parton performances do. Absolutely, yeah. And, like, as for Ronan, he just can't pull that off, because try as he might to convince us otherwise, this isn't his domain, and it never has been, and it never will be. It strikes me less as a love letter to country music, and more as a shallow retread of his cover of When You Say Nothing At All, which also got to number one, yeah, and is just as pointless a cover as this one is. In both cases, I find Ronan's lack of personality and authenticity make otherwise warm, genuine songs feel cold and distant and, worst of all, corporate. I think it's I think it's pretty horrible, and I've no desire to ever listen to this ever again. And I'm so glad this is the last time that we encounter him on this show. I mean, that's a, that's a, I mean, a really really great point as well about his lack of authenticity here in terms of lack of you know substance and lack of energy and lack of mm. oomph to that voice. You know, what? one thing that I always, always think about that you mentioned last time we discussed Rona Keating in Life as a Roller Coaster, which is that that song shared a songwriter with You Only Get What You Give by the mm. New Radicals. And I, I always think about that because I'm like, actually, I can kind of hear the similarity in those songs. I can kind of hear the, the bones of those songs are sort of similar. And then you realise, actually, could these songs be better if they had a different artist behind them? If they had someone who could give a bit of pizzazz? Both Life is a Roller Coaster and um, If Tomorrow Never Comes, could they be actually much, much better? And I think the answer is definitely yes. But we'll never know, yeah. and I don't really wish to find out, if I'm honest. <laughs> like, like I say, I don't love the original of this, but it's so much better. Yeah, so I understand why you both really seem to dislike this. Um, I just sort of think it's okay. Um, I'm definitely on the fence leaning towards, like, not being that much of a fan because it's drippy and it's syrupy and not in a way that can ever feel genuine just because of the way that it's been constructed and it's been very specifically chosen for Ronan to perform. Um, and plus, I don't think a song like this really requires the size that they shoot for, like all the strings and all the dramatic no. drums, and no. like they're, they're totally unnecessary. Like I think you can tell that so many acts right now who walk that line between like boy band pop and adult contemporary music, like Ronan and Blue and Gareth Gates. They're going for that Westlife sound because they know the Westlife sound is like a guaranteed number one at the moment, and. I'm not sure that Westlife would have done done this song justice if they tackled it either, because I think what's missing from this version, and arguably um, the, the the original by Garth Brooks, is that this this song is sung from the perspective of someone who's up at night trying not to make any noise, thinking about a lot of very complicated and existential things that you'll never know the answer to hence the if in the title. Um, and I'm not sure it calls for something this big. Like, even Garth Brooks' version, like, it comes pre-packaged with the fact that it was written in the late 80s, which means that, by default, everything has to be bigger than it needs to be. 
And the opening to this song makes me think about a husband, like, sat up late at night looking at his wife sleeping and then he decides to, like, creep off to the spare bedroom or the back room downstairs just to quietly put this song together and play the guitar and try not to make too much noise but it's just like you know how like i think it's like paul mccartney who says like songs come to him in dreams and he wakes up and he just has to start writing this is kind of how it feels and that's how art works uh, you know you watch a lot of documentaries about you know how albums or songs were put together and you know you, you often like hear people get asked like oh so how did you write that and if any any artist ever says anything other than, oh, it just came to me, I don't really know why, but I had to put it down, they're bullshitting you. There's no mathematical process to coming up with ideas. They just pop mm. into your head. It's like they float by you, like, or they go past you like cars on a road, and you just have to, like, pick out the ones that stick. And that the the immediacy of that image really really early on in the song is really evocative i think and convincing but by the middle part of both versions of the song and especially the ronan version that image is just gone it is completely gone because it just the second verse just repeats itself the it, the, yeah. the thoughts don't go anywhere there are no threads to the thoughts the lyrics just kind of repeat I mean, there's only two verses and two choruses in this because they're really elongated and stretched out. You know, it reaches three and a half minutes, but there's no middle eight or a final chorus or anything like that. It's just really compact. Um, and so when you get the, the big strings and stuff like that, it's just, oh, well, there was a lovely image. And now I can't imagine the, the husband writing at night, you know, slaving away on a guitar at three o'clock in the morning because something's come to him and he has to put it down and he's worried. Like, it, it just it just goes away. I think the Garth Brooks version brings it through a little bit stronger, but again, towards the end of the song, I'm just thinking a bit like, mm, okay, like, I enjoyed the beginning of this, but where is it? Um, but with that being said, um, I think this is the kind of environment that suits Ronan best. Like, his voice especially. Things like Life is a Roller Coaster and Loving Each Day, where he goes for the kind of tone that... I don't know, Miko was going for in the mid-2000s or the kind of optimistic, motivational poster songs that Jess Glynn does every time she steps in front of a microphone. I don't <laughs> think he suits the, the... I don't think he suits those kind of up-tempo, isn't-life-great kind of thing. It turns out I do, you know, looking back, I prefer his slower stuff, things like When You Say Nothing At All or This To An Extent or his cover of um, I Hope You Dance. Like, only up to a point, I should say, because like we're not far off his management just throwing covers at him to see what sticks. I had a look at this, and between two thousand and two and two thousand and six, he covers when he, he covers um, uh, if tomorrow never comes. We've got tonight. She believes in me. I hope you dance. Father and son. Baby, can I hold you? And then finally, Iris by Goo Goo Dolls. <laughs> oh, so like that's one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight covers in four years. But the thing is, I actually think he has a lovely voice, but it's just a shame that, like, his team can never really find somewhere that he fits, you know, like, properly fits, and, like, think, like, yes, unmistakably Ronan, like, that sort of thing. Maybe it's because he's not that interesting after all. Like, you know, he's melodic and tuneful, and there's a nice kind of baritone to his, you know, he has a nice baritone quality to it, but... 
where like I'm just thinking of another baritone singer from around the time, um, Damon Albarn. Damon Albarn has a gorgeous baritone that really aches and has a lot of yearning and kind of tired desperation. Whereas like with Ronan Keating, everything's just kind of played straight. Like he's too interested in wanting to be seen as a serious artist to do anything genuinely properly fun and out there too loved by mums and young kids to ever do anything truly daring. And he's caught between two markets and maybe we'll never know. Well, we will never know what he, what could have been because like not long after this, he was doing albums called like songs for my mum or oh. songs for my mother or something. And it was just more covers. Um, but I think this was just about the most effective thing they can do where they get a song from the eighties that nobody in the UK really knows so that they can erase the original from UK history, which has basically happened. Um, it sounds just country enough for mums and just sensitive enough for young girls. Like he's 25 and hot, but he's also 40 inside. And like the way that they're going to do, uh, like the way they're going to get him to do a number one single is to get him to cover a song that was written by a man who also turned 40 before he turned 30. And I think it translates well enough, just not enough for me to ever stop being aware of exactly what this is. I think that's what it comes back to, which is just, you can feel just how focus grouped and committee created this is. And I can't quite escape it. Even like the music video of just him repeatedly falling in front of that car over and over and over again. Another car crash music video. Um, yeah, where did we got that like, from? Hmm? Yeah, the, exactly. Like the super emotional, like really melodramatic, like, oh God, wouldn't it be awful if Ronan Keating died? And yes, it, it would, because any man who dies at the age of 25 has gone far too young. But, oh God, it's just like, it's it's fine. It's just, it's just yeah. Just a few points there, Rob. I mean, very interesting to get a different take on it there. And, you know, you've put up a, a good sort of semi-defense of it there. You know, I, I think it's interesting what you say about how you know, the strings maybe are too much for the song. Because for me, it's like, it's go one way or the other. That's the problem that I have with this. It's like, if you use the country comparison again, if you look at I Will Always Love You, Dolly Parton, right? You've got the Dolly Parton original. I think it's the original. Anyway, you've got the Dolly Parton version. You've got the Whitney Houston cover, which both absolutely are completely opposite ends of the spectrum. You know, the the Dolly version, it's... It's just, it's mostly just hair and a country band. It never really goes absolutely crazy. It's just a simple, lovely country ballad. And then you've got Winnie, who's obviously all the bells and whistles and the key changes and the high notes. And both of them very successful in their genre, both of them very big sellers, both of them beloved by their fan bases. Because they're so different. They're at other extremes in terms of what people want. And this is just like right bang in the sort of everyman middle and that is the death of it that's that's the worst place you can be you know i i find myself thinking well let's have more strings because then at least it'll be something you know i i actually kind of disagree with what you said about westlife i think for what it's worth westlife actually would do a better job with this because they they at least know how to do that earnest over the top crooning that ronan is trying to do but just doesn't really do i wonder if it's to do with the voice to be honest whether it's to do with ronan's voice because i do find it oddly sort of clipped you know just sort of like mm. like almost like he's singing through a ventriloquist dummy or something like or you know it's just it's just a strange strange singing voice where not really much texture seems to come out of it and i wonder how much of that has to do with it but i think yeah go where go one way or the other you know have it be a really simple effective ballad or have it be you know big 
Bwah! X Factor winners single. Bigness. Don't just sit in this middle ground because that's that's the worst place to be. Yeah, this kind of middle ground just seems like cowardice to me. It's yeah. like you're big enough and you're popular enough that you can you can push the boat out in whichever direction you want to go, but just going this straight down the middle, it's it's kind of pathetic and I don't know, we deserve better than that. <laughs> but then it got him a number one. You know, I made this point about life it, is a well, roller coaster and this is the important yeah, thing but, to remember. This stuff sells. It gets number one. So why wouldn't course, he do it? Yeah. But that's the most depressing thing of all, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> well, he won't be back to trouble us anymore. Unless, <laughs> uh, unless he fancies getting a number one in, in uh, the future. Like, you oh, know, he tried. 2023. He, he, did a, <laughs> he did a duet with Lad Baby, don't you know? No. Oh. Oh. Yes, he did. Well, I'm gonna have to go and look that up. But in the meantime, <laughs> in the meantime, we'll run away from Ronan Keating um, and move on to something a bit more exciting. I think uh, next up on our show is this. This is Just A Little by Liberty X, released as the third single from the group's debut studio album entitled Thinking It Over. Just A Little is also Liberty X's third single to be released in the UK overall and their first to reach number one. It is also their last. Just A Little went straight in at number one as a brand new entry, knocking Ronan Keating off the top of the charts. It stayed at number one for one week. In its first and only week atop the charts, it sold 153,000 copies and beat competition from Escape by Enrique Iglesias, which re-entered the chart and got to number three, What's Love by Fat Joe and Ashanti, which got to number four, Don't Let Me Get Me by Pink, which got to number six, and In My Eyes by Milk Incorporated, which got to number nine. When it was knocked off the top of the charts, Just A Little fell one place to number two, and by the time it was done on the chart, it had been inside the top 100 for 18 weeks. Just a little achieved platinum status in the UK in 2019, so it took a while, but it got there. Oh, Lizzie, wow. just a yeah. little. Um, how are we? You can say a little or a lot about it. Go ahead. <laughs> yeah, well, this is just a little more like it. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, but yeah, um, this is a song I remember vividly from the time. Probably... Well, mainly because of the video, you know, where Jessica Taylor and Kelly Young are wearing like leather cat suits and taking part in some sort of diamond tie. Like that's a great video. Yeah, it's an A-force pop video. Brilliant video. Yeah. yeah. 
Yeah, I'm, and I'm actually quite surprised to hear that this is their last number one because I do recall them suddenly being huge around this time, just as Hearsay had basically vanished. And it's probably for the best that they held this one back while the Hearsay wave died down because to me, it's the one that differentiates them the most from the squeaky clean Hearsay. Like, they pull off the whole sex appeal angle really confidently, which I'd say is rare for most of the UK talent show acts that we'll be encountering on this podcast. And the production on this is really nicely done too, which made it all the more surprising that the producer, or producers, I don't know, the producer of this song have barely any credits on Discogs. It was produced by The Big Pockets, all one word who I've been unable to find a real name for and whose only other production credits other than this song are for a blue b-side in 2003 and a Dane Bowers album track in 2021. In mighty company there. Yeah, (laughs) I mean, I fear we might have another Rick Rock on our hands unless someone knows knows otherwise. (laughs) Maybe one of you listeners out there can give us the, the lowdown on... Uh, what were they called again? The Big Pockets. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I, th- I think it's really well done. I think it's one of the better like song pop songs to have come out of a talent show. Um, obviously not of this year, because there's one we'll come to later, which is much better, I think. But I think this is a really solid number one. I, it's probably my favourite this week, personally. I think most people will disagree, but that's fine. But yeah, I've got very good memories of this song and it holds up really well. Yeah, first of all, the big pockets just instantly makes me think of um, Alan's big pocket from Knowing Me, Knowing You. That will uh, (laughs) be the only thing in my head there. Yeah, I love this. I really love this. Um, Definitely my favourite of the week. Yeah, absolutely love this. I think the first thing I want to say about this is that Liberty X are probably the first example of that odd phenomenon of talent show runners-up usually doing better than the winner. I mean, Will and Gareth was kind of a draw. Some might argue that, in the immediate sense, Gareth Gates did slightly better in in the kind of zeitgeist, but overall, Will Young, you know, has been very, very successful. Um, This is sort of the first example where the the runners-up really do outshine the legacy of the winners themselves. I don't know why that is. I think maybe it's something to do with how it's easier to shake off that talent show pressure first Mm -hmm. of all and also that association of being uncool because you won pop idol or pop stars or the x factor or whatever you know i think the likes of jls ollie mares one direction you can just about sort of forget sometimes that they are x factor acts whereas you couldn't forget that with say shane ward or leona lewis or alexandra burke so i think maybe that's what it is but this is the first example of that really and at the time, you know, I, I really liked Liberty X and I was so much more energised by them than I was by Hearsay. Because even at the time with Hearsay, you know, even though I was a kid, I did get this sense from them that they were a bit sort of um, sterile. I, I mean, I wouldn't have used those words, obviously, but it would, you know, that they were a bit sort of, hmm, safe, you know, fun for the family. Whereas Liberty X seemed kind of dangerous and sort of, you know exciting in a way that hearsay absolutely weren't you know they were the sort of counter programming to hearsay as it were and very very successfully because th- this song absolutely slaps i love this song i mean the, the thing that they do really really well is just absolutely overload it with hooks they they start straight oh, in yeah. with that 
that sexy thing. I, I, you know, the way I just said the word sexy, I didn't know whether, whether to sing it or say it, so I just went like, sexy. Didn't mean to do that. Anyway. <laughs> you played it very well. <laughs> it always makes me think of um, that Peter Kay sequence with the DJ. What am I? Sexy. Um, oh, Andy. Oh, Andy, I've got that in my notes. <laughs> I've got that in my notes as well. <laughs> what am I hitting? You're really hitting my spot. Yeah. Um, but th- that's like a really, really good verse. And then they sort of pass the mic around between the five of them, each with their own kind of pretty catchy little bit of that verse and um, and bridge and chorus as well. And then it gets into that sort of sort of call and response, but may- mainly just a really well kind of written chorus with the work it a little get huh and it's one of those ones that even if you don't know the words you can just sort of go duh just a little duh duh you know one of those songs that you can get away with because you just it's in your head and you don't need to actually know how it goes that is the key to a really really catchy song I really think the production is fantastic on this as well that there are so many layers behind it like it's it's quite a common theme at this time I think we'd all agree to to make your song sound quite sexy in in whatever way that you can you know we've had love don't cost a thing and uh, well more than a woman and we've had last week as well with Holly Valance obviously that you know doing the sort of sexy R&B side to your song is very very popular at this time and they do it with all sorts of levels of percussion and little synthy bits and just kind of randomness in the background that makes it feel exciting and makes it feel energetic and makes it feel like it's going to creep up on you slightly but anchored by a really kind of strong britney style on the beat rhythm that you know brings it to life it's a perfect combination and i also think they're all really good singers um I think they do what S Club, for example, really failed to do by being so reliant on Joe, in that this song mm. isn't really reliant on yeah. any one of them. Like, you can't really pick out a lead singer from this. They genu- genuinely pass the mic around to a fairly equal extent. I mean, the boys get slightly lost in it, possibly. And I'd say, you know, probably Kelly gets the most to do. But really, they all kind of shine. They all get um, their little bit, really. Um, and they're just a really, really well put together pop group. I think they had so much potential and it's a shame that it kind of fell off relatively quickly for them. Um, I don't know if that's just a case of, you know, a really great song fell into their lap here. And I don't think it is because their their song before this, Thinking It Over, I used to quite like that at the time. They did a good cover of um, Ain't Nobody. They um, had a song Holding On For You, which was a fairly decent ballad as well. Like, I really liked Liberty X, but this is the real, you know, the real jewel of the crown for them. And I think everything just comes together. It's like fun and exciting in a way that can be sexy but still fun for all the family um it's really really well produced they come across as a really likable group um and yeah it's great i really really love this and i was surprised by how much i love this when i listened to it because i was always quite fond of it um but because it's kind of a mainstay of family parties and things like that, you know, it's not one I often actually sit down and listen to. But when I did, I was like, God, this is really well put together. This is really good. You could give this song to, like, the biggest pop stars and they would, you know, it would be worthy of them. Um, so, yeah, really love this. Really, really like it. Yeah. Oh, just, awesome. just going back to, um, to Libsy X and kind of their singles after this, like, I mean, you know, they they didn't kind of disappear they still had like top 10 hits yeah. i just wanted to um mention in particular being nobody which is their mashup of ain't nobody and being boiled by one richard x who did um 
freak like me from mm. the last episode. Ah. And it's a shame you couldn't have showed up this week to do If Tomorrow Never Knows. Oh, oh. And Beatles. oh God. Even the thought of what that would sound like. Even the thought of Ronan's voice, like, turn off your mind, relax, and float downstream. <laughs> no thanks. <laughs> um, as for me, um, I'll get my negatives out of the way um, first, because uh, I do have a lot of positives about this. Um, the production for me is a bit of a mixed bag. I think the arrangement that comes from the production is fantastic, but the the quality of sound is where I think it's lacking. I think it's far too trebly and loud and bright. Those acoustic guitars at the beginning are like like somebody twanging elastic bands next to my head. Like I feel like <laughs> they should be a bit bassier. They're just a bit too clear. Uh, for me, I feel like it needs more bass and more attitude, like mm-hmm. something a bit more human coming up from underneath, something driving it, you know, like a walking bass line or, you know, like in later years, I feel like this would have sub bass just by default and that may have improved it ever so slightly. Um, and I think um, it maybe doesn't hit my emotions uh, as much as I thought, like my memories of this are not that vivid. Um, for years, and for, as Liberty X as well, I always assumed that they were. I remember them, and I don't really associate with them with um, uh, pop stars or you know being like the losers to hearsay or anything like that. But but there is always a part of me that mixes Liberty X up with. Um, do you remember Big Brothers? Oh yeah, yeah. Who oh, did yeah. Um, New Flow and stuff like that? Oh, I always I yeah. Big Bro. Taking over, Taking the, over show. the show. Wow, with this new flow. <laughs> I always assumed that was Liberty X. And then I looked it up and I was like, oh no, it's them. And then I always assumed that Liberty X did favourite things, but that was also Big Brothers yeah. as well. <laughs> um, so yeah, um, I, I was a little bit mixed up with that. Um, and also, there's a moment really early on where one of the female vocalists, sorry, I don't know her name, where the way that she says, Compliment is oh, so good. Oh, I love that. Good. That's, it's that's maybe yeah. my favorite thing in the whole song. Yeah, so don't it's my favorite it. moment it. too. <laughs> yeah, it, 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 honestly, it's my favorite moment as well. It sounds so gruff and so passionate, but nothing yeah. like that ever comes back. Like I just, I wish there was more, there, more of that, more personality. Um, like, and I'm talking about. I mean, this song does have a, a lot of personality, but I wish it just had that extra, like, you know, something like that, something sassy that would kind of take it over the edge. I think that's maybe what it's lacking. It's lacking just the just a sprinkle of sass, where it has a decent degree of it, but just not quite enough for me. Um, but positives got a lot of them. Um, this is still. Um, like you say, I think both of you have said uh, it's sexy, and it, like you say, it is still a massive, massive hit at wedding discos and family parties everywhere in the UK, which has definitely got to count for something. They have way more personality than hearsay. Um, they're willing to try something a bit more exciting, and it feels like they have the freedom and the range to do that. Um, I love the little like innuendos and ad-libs that keep things fresh in the verses and in the choruses just to keep it going for as long as possible. And like the, each of the vocalists brings something a bit different to each other without feeling inferior to anybody around them, which is a massive problem I think that uh, Hearsay definitely had. Uh, I think the boys weren't as good or as memorable as the girls. Whereas here, I think Liberty X show that they have more staying power and that's something they eventually prove. Even if this is their only number one, they stay in the top ten for 
a while. Like, you know, they're, they're around for like five years, I think, which is a good stay. Um, I've got great memories of the, like you say, Andy, the Peter K routine, um, which is the, what have I got? What have I hit? You know, it's just great. And I could talk about Peter K's love and taste and appreciation for pop music for hours and we'll get more chances to do that as the uh, as the song goes on but i think what i do love about this track beyond the uh, compliment is how this isn't a house track or a dance track but it works in a really similar way in how it introduces lots of layers and sections and then in the second half of the track, it has loads of fun with like taking those layers away, adding them back in, letting that chorus ride for a second time around, then dropping everything out but the voices, then building back up again step by step. And it's like a DJ kind of like, you know, turning, you know, like raising the volume and lowering the volume on certain tracks to kind of build up anticipation. And it layers it in the same way that something like, I don't know, um, another chance or Toka's miracle or something like that would and it gives it this just sort of extra little bit of of character i just i do feel like i'm being a little bit like i'm being my ears are being assaulted slightly by the sound quality of the song i think it's far it's just it's too crisp i sometimes i wish there was a bit of 70s dust sprinkled over it well like, it's just a bit crackly well like this is where i think you know, like um the warmth of um some 70s disco songs is what takes them over the edge. Um, or at least this, actually, this feels more late 70s, early 80s, this, in what it feels like it's going for. Um, but I do like this a lot. This kind of, the way I feel about it is similar to how I feel about something like um, like when we did Madison Avenue or something like that. It it has that kind of, it occupies a similar space. Um, don't absolutely love it, but it's only just missing out on the vault. It's really close, but it's only just missing out. Just a thing on like the whole identity and you know in terms of them as a group. I th- well, first of all, you know they weren't originally called Liberty X. They had to change it because there was another group called Liberty, so they had to change it from Liberty to Liberty X. And I do think that choice of the name Liberty probably is somewhat inspired by the fact that you know they are more free to do whatever they want as opposed to hearsay. You know, they they kind of can have a bit more spirit about them. They can be more of a group for adults if they want to be. And I think maybe that's, you know, coming back to the first thing I said about runners-up of talent shows generally tending to do better. I think they're just generally a little bit, only a little bit, but a little bit less stage-managed. And they have that freedom to do something a little bit different. You know, I think that's maybe part of it. And I think... It's just, I really like to get behind this sort of artist who's using their talent show platform to do something that's not just if tomorrow never comes, as an example. You know, someone who's using their platform to actually make some really fun pop music. Um, so, yeah, yeah, full credit to them for that. Yeah, um, I agree. And I'm really glad that they ended up with the name Liberty X because just having them being called Liberty, I feel like it wouldn't have connected in quite the, the same way. Which is weird. I often think this about names with pop groups like... Well, Little Mix. Called... It's Little Mix, isn't it? They were Rhythmics while they were on yeah. the X Factor. Like, I wonder how, how if that would have lasted. Yeah. Yeah, and just sort of like, you know, if they were just called Liberty, would they have been bound by that name? Because Liberty has... Con- it is. It's about the connotations. And like, but Liberty X, like that X is like, oh, what does, what does that mean? Like, that means they could do anything. 
I, it, you know, it puts things in your mind where it's like, what does X mean? Like, that's why the X Factor ended up being named what it was, because it's like, what's the X Factor? Don't know, but it's something cool, isn't it? And it's something that we can't quite distinguish. It's it's barely tangible, but you can see it and you can sense it. And I think, like I said in a previous episode, it allows Simon Cowell to, like, during an audition or a live show, when he spots an artist that he really wants to put into the charts, he can lean back in his chair, put his fingers on his chin, and then point at them and go, you've got the X Factor. It's and al- everybody can go, yes, <laughs> that's a good thing. X Factor's a good thing, isn't it? It's almost like it doesn't exist, isn't it? And you could be, you could be yeah. fooled yeah. into thinking there's no such thing as an X Factor. <laughs> it could be moulded any which way. But uh, yeah. yeah, anyway, um, last up this week um, is this. Without Me by Eminem, released as the lead single from his third studio album entitled The Eminem Show. Without Me is Eminem's ninth single overall to be released in the UK. It is his third single to reach number one after The Real Slim Shady and Stan both reached number one in the year 2000. It is not the last time we'll be discussing uh, Marshall Mathers on this podcast. Without Me went straight in at number one as a brand new entry, knocking Liberty X off the top of the charts. It stayed at number one for one week. In its first and only week at number one, it sold 186,000 copies, beating competition from It's Okay by Atomic Kitten, which got to number three, Bop Bop Baby by Westlife, which got to number five, It Takes More by Miss Dynamite, which got to number seven, and Reason by Ian Van Dahl which got to number eight. 
when it was knocked off the top of the charts without me dropped one place to number two. After dropping out of the top 100 in 2005, after 15 weeks, it re-entered the chart in 2004 and then again in 2022. And as of today, Without Me has spent a total of 20 weeks inside the top 100. In 2021, the song was declared to have sold 1.8 million copies since its UK release, and it has received triple platinum status as a result. Andy, uh, Eminem, Without Me, go. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I'm not going to dominate too much time with my thoughts on this one because I, I know that you two have probably have far more to say and also are far more kind of qualified to talk on Eminem than I am. Um, but I do like this. It does get a thumbs up from me. But I do think this is a definite step down from the Eminem songs that we've covered before. And just to, to again, emphasise, I do like this. Um, you know, it's it's... Still decent, I still had fun listening to it. But I had problems with this that are kind of more pronounced than I've had previously with Eminem. Um, and, you know, the, fir- the first of which being, you know, Eminem is always, in terms of his vocal style, he's always very kind of obnoxious, very kind of loud and very abrasive. But that is really dialed up to the max on this one. Um, especially with that outro, nah, 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 nah. It just kind of sounded like the annoying <laughs> orange, you know. Um, it, it just kind of bothered me in a way that I didn't really expect it to. I think that is a wider symptom of my second issue that I have with this, is that it's all very, very self-congratulatory. It's very self-aware in a way that is maybe crossing the line from, you know, kind of meta-commentary into just straight up, you know, bragging, basically. Just straight up bravado, which I'm not a huge fan of. You know, it, it makes songs very of their time. It makes them very of their culture specifically. And it means that looking back on it 20 years on, it's just sort of like, oh, I just don't really connect to this. And, you know, it doesn't really land in the way that it should because we're, we're way past the point now where Eminem is king of the world, which he sort of was at this time. And I get that. But I just don't really connect with that. Um, so, yeah, I do have my problems with it. But to tell you what I really, really like about it is that this is, as always with Eminem, it's so well written. It's so really, really clever with the amount of little hooks, the little catchy bits that are thrown into those verses. Um, I think the chorus kind of lets it down a bit. I think if it had a bigger chorus that, you know, landed in the same way that the Slim Shady chorus does, this could really be really, really great. I think the chorus slightly lets it down a bit. But there's just so many bits that I remember when I was a kid from this song, you know, that stuck with me, that, that this must mean I'm disgusting. You know, just these little bits of wordplay <laughs> and little rhythmic changes that more than anything i think the way that he plays with rhythm is so so clever and i have to give full credit for that but yeah i think this is a little bit kind of uh, bit in your face for me to be honest um so i don't kind of absolutely love it but it's still really good um it's definitely better than the next couple of oh actually no not the next couple of eminem songs tell a like because we've got a really good one coming up but um yeah it's not a favorite eminem track of mine but um i do like it i do like it and i'm ready to be convinced by you two because i'm sure you're going to be far far more positive than me so i'm absolutely ready to be convinced and i will give up the floor to you both yeah uh lizzie yeah are you are you gonna try and convince Andy? <laughs> well, I mean, I'll try, and then if if that if that fails, we've got one really good one coming up, and then one absolute stinker, oh, which yeah. might be one of my least favorite ever. Yeah, but not looking yeah, forward to that. We'll come to that. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm I'm kind of like you, Andy. Like, I like this. I don't love it as much as Real Slim Shady. Definitely don't love it as much as Stan. 
I think there's definitely, like, in terms of the good points, I like the instrumental. It's kind of bouncy and obnoxious, and I think it suits the the track really well. And obviously Eminem's flow is, I'm sure, the envy of most rappers. Like, he's just on point as ever. He's, like, pin perfect. Um, in terms of what I don't like, I think... Well, I'd say my biggest problem with this song is that I think it is kind of a rehash of Real Slim Shady. Mm. And I'm not sure what new it's really adding to the mix because I think, again, it is a song about... Well, it, you know, especially at the end, he kind of covers, like, oh, there's a, a million others just like me and what was it he said in this one? It's like 20 million... Oh, 20 million white rappers, white rappers emerge. emerge. Yeah, yeah, no matter how many fish in the sea, you'd be so empty without me. It's like... Yeah, we get it. And I think also some of the targets he chooses in this song are quite strange. Like, so he's pretty much the biggest pop star in the world at this point. I think it's safe to say. And the targets he chooses are Chris Kirkpatrick from NSYNC, Limp Biscuit, who, yes, they were successful, but they're kind of on the out at this point, and Moby. And Moby, he calls a homophobic slur, but that's another thing. And like I get, and like saying nobody listens to techno. Like, dude, you're from Detroit. <laughs> Come on, <laughs> you know that's not true. It, it's just I don't know. It seems it's one of these things where it must get more difficult when you you sort of work your way up and you're punching on all sides, and then you reach the top and it's like, well, now what? Because I can't punch up. I'm already at the top. I can. L- kind of only punch down I, I find a similar thing happen with like Little Britain where there's a marked difference between like series one and series two where it's clear that they just ramp up the controversy side of it they just go right what's the most disgusting and despicable thing we can do or say and let's make six sketches out of it done go it feels like we're sort of veering into that kind of territory and I feel like that's a, it's a turn that is completed when we get to 2004 but we'll we'll talk about that then obviously um as with this i do like i know i'm sort of criticizing a lot i do think it's good but i also think it maybe gives us a hint of what's to come and not so much in a good way yeah lizzie i completely I completely agree on that point about how it's turned from punching up to punching down. That's that's kind of summarised it very effectively in terms of what I feel about it, in terms of the difference between this and Real Slim Shady in context. That with Real Slim mm-hmm. Shady, you know, that's like he's had a few big hits now, you know, people are starting to really know who Eminem is, and then that's the mission statement of like, right, you're going to stand up and listen to me now. You know, yeah, this yeah. is someone asserting their authority over that scene and now it's like you know he's at megastar status he's really at that kind of level of like beyonce or you know ed sheeran is these days and it's like yeah well yeah. you know yes we know you're here you don't need to keep doing these big grandstanding songs now and it, it comes across as more showboating than anything mm. um especially with the music video which really you know plays up that sort of shock factor disgusting sides really really hard where you know there's a bit at the end where they're all pretending to be bin laden dancing in his cave which bear in mind this is 2002 you know at the start of the episode we were talking about how they're still clearing ground zero that's like close to the bone 
they have, they have that bit where it's Elvis dying on the toilet in the music video. It's like, you don't need to be this in our faces. And it just comes across as, I can do whatever I want because I'm Eminem. And yes, you can, but okay, I didn't say you couldn't, you know? <laughs> uh, yeah. yeah, and Elvis is another weird target. I'm glad you mentioned that because I completely forgot that he does go after Elvis a couple of times. And it's like, dude, you know he's been dead for like 25 years? Yeah. Yeah, it's I don't know I, I I don't know why we particularly need that. I guess it's because he sees himself as, or or he is, at that level where he is this untouchable star and he can basically say anything and know he can get away with it, which is what he does. Yeah, doesn't mean he should though. That's the thing. Like he can oh, get he can say anything and can get away with it, but if you actually do, then you know. It's it's sort of having your cake and eating it, isn't it? Really, of like just just sort of showing off for the sake of it, and that's yeah, that's what I was getting at, really. Mm. Yeah. Anyway, Rob, I'm sure you're far more positive. <laughs> yeah, go on. Uh, yeah, I am, but I do think that there is a distinct difference between how British people react to things and how American people react to things. Like before, social media kind of homogenized how people react to things, especially in terms of if they feel outraged or shocked. You know, the, it, British people just tend to kind of go like, oh, you're doing that, are you? That's not big and that's, you know, you think you're big and clever, do you? Whereas, like, Americans, like, you know, the, the you know at, at the start of this album that this is on, like the Eminem show, there's a whole shout out where it's like, he's shouting at, like, Tipper Gore. <laughs> and, like, um, like, he's shouting at, you know, because Tipper Gore ran the whole thing, like, to get people censored and... I think Tipper Gore was, like, initially behind, like, the parental advisory stickers and stuff like that. Have I got that wrong? Is that a separate case? I can't remember. No, that sounds about right. Yeah. Um, And so, like, I think if if in America, I guess, if you were there, you would feel that outrage. Like, Americans just do everything bigger, don't they? And so when it's outrage, it's just like, oh, Eminem must be discussed in the House of Representatives. And, like, you know, it's that sort of thing. And... Oh, something must be done about this, like that sort of feeling that you get that I think has only really crept over the Atlantic in like the last 10 years, this idea that we must be seen to respond to this. You know, we, we, that we must be seen doing something about this. We, we can't let this go on. I think we're seeing this at the moment with Sam Smith, where it's like, oh, yeah, we, 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 we simply cannot let this continue. It's like, you know, 20 years ago, somebody like Tattoo, where it's like for a week, everybody's a bit like, oh, God, you see them lesbians on the telly? Yeah, I did. Anyway, do you want to do something else? Yeah, sure. Why not? And so it just, it feels like we're just a bit too glum to get really het up about Eminem. Whereas like, if you're in America, Eminem's like, he knows how to push buttons. Um, But um, there are definitely points where I agree with you both. Um, So I'll get the positives out of the way. And there are a lot of them. Uh, and then I'll move on to the negatives because uh, it's very hard to talk about this song without hindsight kind of like shrouding it because mm-hmm. um, we know where Eminem ends up like you know we know that we're 18 yeah. months off what I would call the biggest drop off of any solo rapper I would agree I, I, I just think the difference between the Eminem show and Encore is it's just like somebody falling straight off a skyscraper. Like it's not even down a cliff with edges and bumps and stuff like that. It is just a sheer drop. And so listening to this, it's kind of like, you can just see where it's beginning to go off the rails a little bit. Um, 
But the positives, um, I think, I've, I actually think this is fantastic. Um, I think it's got <laughs> more going on on the surface, which means that there's less substance to this than some of his previous hits. I think, but I think it's aiming to be a lot more superficial. It's a bit of a palate cleanser and a bit of a reminder of what Eminem's good at without booking expectations too much because like the thing is he's three albums deep now and as you say Lizzie he's at the top and so he has nowhere to kind of punch up anymore and he has an audience and that audience he needs to keep it and he needs to cultivate it and painkillers haven't really started eroding his brain yet so he's still interested in wanting the audience around wanting to make stuff for them stuff that he knows that will excite the 13 year old boy who is begging his mum to go to target to buy the cd and then when it gets in the house the mum thinks god why have i let this cd in my house that's you know, he knows the character that he needs to play, he says at the start of the song, you know, I've created a monster, nobody wants to see Marshall no more, they want Shady. And so it's basically, like you said, Lizzie, it's basically Slim Shady Part 2, which was technically My Name Is Part 2, so we're yeah, kind of on My Name Is Part 3. But regardless, M is so much fun when he's on it like this. His technical ability is ridiculous, probably more dexterous uh, without me than anything he's done up to this point and thinking about it would would probably ever do again like um there is a complete there is a total difference between like dexterity and just rapping fast like yeah listening to rap god is like whoa like oh my god he can rap that fast and it's like yeah he sort of can but like what's he saying I agree, Andy, that it is self-congratulatory, but I believe that it is kind of deservingly so at this point. I think it would go to your head a little bit because he is on top of the world, and as he sort of noticed, he's taken a year off. Things aren't the same when he's not around uh, at this point. Everyone was kind of waiting for him to come back, and he knew it, so play with that. Believe your own hype, whatever. And he is still very funny here, like naturally so. Lots of little comedy skits, lots of little memorable moments inside of verses, like you were saying, Andy, the disgusting. And um, there's a couple of other ones as well that are kind of piled on top of each other, especially in that second verse. I think he was so great at finding that balance between his rap upbringing and his pop sensibilities, and I think this really displays that. I think he manages to make it quite aggressive, with all the constant wordplay, but it translates into something that hundreds of thousands of people would want to buy. And then he manages to, I think, pull a great chorus hook like that and stick it on a rap song. Like, I think the whole product is, like, is 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 really enjoyable and, and really excellent. I love the silly, like... It's not really a bass line, but, you know, just the silly, like, instrumental hook, the thing that he goes, na-na-na-na-na-na, over the end of... Uh, at, at the end of the song it's just a silly little kind of sax lead I guess that kind of just revolves around underneath him and it has all the hallmarks of where Eminem his lyrics you know like bordering on horrorcore but like a lot of his instrumentals were sort of a bit not silly but there's a slight novelty edge to things like you know I was listening to My Name Is before and fun fact um, the song the Labby Sifri song that sampled uh, for My Name Is, um, the, the instrumental was played by Chaz and Dave. 
<laughs> the, yeah. Um, which, but it's that weird, but it's that kind of connection. I always think Dr. Dre, as much as he was a hard head and like, you know, pretty serious guy and like, don't fuck with him and that sort of thing. But his way of mixing beats for Eminem and even on stuff like Detox, there's something slightly playful and sort of unusual and sort of dainty about some of his beats like i always think about you know the next episode where it opens with that big but then it goes into a little and it's just it feels kind of silly when like the um forgot about dre as well where it's just the little going it's like a little boink noise it just kind of goes and it, and it's just the whole lyrics are like you know don't forget about me I'm really important like that sort of thing and then I don't know no idea how he makes it work but without me is another one of those Eminem beats where it's like this is a bit silly isn't it there's like a slight wobble to like stuff like real slim shady as well it's something about it that feels slightly comedic and silly um, and so yeah I think without me is up there with you know one of the the best kind of beats that Eminem had but. And it's only a tiny butt for now, but fucking hell, that butt is going to grow, like, to the size of, like, three ten-story buildings. Like, just B-U-T, like, by by the point of, like, 2004. It's just there are little cracks starting to show. Like, his references are a little bit, uh, a bit like, you sort of listen to it and you go, oh, why, why are you having a go at this guy? Like... Yeah, I, know he's got a, I know he's got a number one album in two th- at the moment, Moby, but like, it's like one of those where it's like, who who out there listened to this song and thought, yeah, fi- finally someone's had a go at that fucking Moby prick? Like, no. <laughs> <laughs> he's picking on like pretty easy targets like Lynn Cheney. And I know it's like topical at that point because, you know, we're just about to go to, well, I say we, uh, definitely we, we're about to go to Iraq and Afghanistan at this point, and so Dick Cheney's overseeing all of this, uh, but like, when he drops the name Chris Kirkpatrick, it's like, oh yeah, the fourth guy that people think about when they imagine NSYNC in their heads, like, not Justin Timberlake, not Lance Bass, not, uh, what is it, JC Chavez, you know, the people with like, you know, stage names, like, you know, n- nothing, no, 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 it's Chris Kirkpatrick, okay, like, a court case with his mum from like two years ago, which is another one of those like callbacks, I think, to like my name is, where it's like you know my mum spoke smokes more pot than I do, which is the whole where the lawsuit came from, and then it's like, oh well, settled on my lawsuits. Fuck you, Debbie. Like okay, yeah, great, and like you say, lip biscuit. Like okay, is <laughs> fair like, enough. Chris Kirkpatrick in particular, it feels like, and I don't know you, but I'm sure you're a jerk. <laughs> <laughs> so I just yeah. him. what's going on yeah that is exactly it like it, it's I think it's a sign I mean I know we had a bit of a feud with Fred Durst for some reason but we've kind of been here like he referenced Fred Durst on The Real Slim Shady and yeah it's just a bit like you're recycling things a bit too much here and not in like a knowingly winky kind of way like he did with um, uh, I Drank a Fifth of Vodka Damity Drive like on Stan where he cribs that line from My Name Is and stuff so you know he's very good at being self-referential but it feels like the self-referential stuff in this is not as strong as it could be and I think it's a little sign that his finger is drifting slightly off the pulse 
ever so slightly. Mm. I, I don't like this as much as Real Slim Shady, and I definitely don't like it as much as Stan, but I think his fingers just... It, it, I mean, as far as I'm concerned, like, we're living in rare times right now where Kendrick Lamar has made it four or five albums into his discography, and I would argue he has not dropped a dud. And I don't even think he's really slowed, showed signs of slowing down. Like, yeah, okay, like, Damn is maybe not as good as uh, To Pimp a Butterfly or Good Kid Mad City, but, like, To Pimp a Butterfly is, like, a monolith of modern music. Mm. I mean, I think just this last week, it's gone to number one on RateYourMusic.com. It's overtaken OK Computer after, like, 15 years of OK Computer being number one. And so it's like a titan of, especially of modern rap, I think of modern pop as well. And Dan was a bit of a step down from that, but I think he's gonna step back up with um, his recent one, Mr. Morale and the Big Steppers, and like, that's rare. I think to find a solo rapper who goes more than three albums without you thinking, oh, you're just losing your energy a bit there, or you're just not quite as witty as you used to be, it's rare because it's so hard to sustain the level of rage, wit, dexterity and energy that's required to be like an exciting rap artist and i think eminem is pushing himself to the limit and then things happen in like 2003 in his personal life i think he just burns out to be honest but yeah he's but you know and he's also got the eight mile soundtrack coming up as well so like he's working on so and and the film so he's working on so much at the moment and i think we we see the come down um, quite soon, but not next. But yeah, so I think this is fantastic, but knowing what comes, it's hard not to see bits of it in this. Um, and so I'll, I'll step away. Can I just say, um, I'm glad you mentioned like what's coming up with regard to like the Iraq war, because I was just, I was just thinking then, and I thought, the world in which The Real Slim Shady was released was a very different world to the world in which Without Me was released. Oh, yeah. Like, because at, at that time, in, like, 2000, he was public enemy number one, and it was this whole thing of, like, music is corrupting our children, and, like you say, typical and parental advisory and all of that stuff. And by 2002, that's, like, old news, yeah. It's all, you know, war on terror and and all of that kind of stuff that's kind of driving public outrage. And so I don't think this has the same bite as it did, say, two years before. Yeah, I to kind of leave off on this and to sort of look ahead to the future, I think it's hard to make Eminem seem as dangerous when an actual full-on disaster horror has happened yes. in real life in, in New York on September 11th. I just think after 9-11, a person making music, the danger that's needed, I, I just think, it, like you say, energy's elsewhere, understandably. Absolutely. Uh, and how Eminem responds to that uh, is going to be a... God, it's going to be a massive discussion point in it. <laughs> just can't wait for that episode when we wait. get there. <laughs> But anyway, um, before we go, we're going to just check if any songs this week are heading into the pie hole or being lifted up into our lovely vault uh, that stands above us somewhere in the clouds. So, If Tomorrow Never Comes by Ronan Keating 
Is that is that going anywhere for anyone? Pie hole. Yep, seconding pie hole. Hard okay, is the two, pie hole. Yeah, yeah, two votes for the pie hole. I'm not quite there. Um, just a little by Liberty X. Vault. It narrowly misses out on the vault for me. It's still really yeah, good, though. Me too. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Yeah, me too. And Without Me by Eminem. Nope. Afraid not. I'm, 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 I'm putting it in. I think it, I'm, I'm, huh? it, 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 it is vault material uh, for me. That is it for this week's episode. Thank you so much for checking us out and for sticking with us. Thank you very much. When we come back, we'll be covering the period between the 2nd of June and the 3rd of August. That is a yawning chasm compared to what we've uh, been dealing with (laughs) the past two weeks. Uh, So, hooray, there might be more news. So we'll see you then. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. Bye.